Good afternoon, everyone. I am Tracy Picard from the MSU COM statewide campus system. I am stepping in today for Dr. Deb Young, who is out of town. Um, we're happy to have you join us for today's Med Ed eForum. Our guest today is Dr. Zulalinski. She was born and raised in Florida. She completed her higher education at Florida State University with a BS in psychology. Appalachian State University with an MA in clinical health psychology and the University of Southern Mississippi with where, where she earned her PhD in clinical psychology. Her pre-doctoral internship was at the John D. Dingle VA in Detroit and she that's what brought her to Michigan. After her inter internship, Dr. Zawalinski wanted to remain in Michigan and completed a fellowship in clinical health psychology and medical education at Ascension Genesis in Grand Blanc, Michigan. She joined the Providence Family Medicine Residence faculty in November 2019. Her curricular areas include behavioral medicine, research, and wellness. She lives in Berkeley with her husband, son, and their dog. And for fun, she enjoys spending time with her family, traveling, reading, and yoga. So she is here today kindly to talk to us about an important topic, suicide prevention for healthcare providers. So I'm going to go ahead and, and mute my microphone and Zach, Dr. Zolinski, I'll turn it over to you. I will monitor the chat. So if we have any questions as we go through, um, I will go ahead and add those. Thank you. Great, thank you, Tracy. Okay, so um, as Tracy uh, mentioned, I am Lacey Zielinski. I'm a psychologist by training, and I've been working as the Director of Behavioral Health and full-time faculty with the Family Medicine Residency Program at Ascension Providence since 2019, just before the pandemic. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I regularly present on is suicide prevention uh, in primary care specifically. Uh, and today we'll talk a little bit about that. And I will also talk about kind of other settings and populations as well. So as after this presentation, it is my hope that you will be able to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on suicide, uh, identify risk factors for suicide, um, demonstrate the ability to effectively assess for suicide risk and provide uh, appropriate interventions in an effort to prevent death by suicide, and then uh, be able to talk about at least one national resource for suicide prevention. But before we really dive in, I wanted to make sure to talk some about uh, the language that we use around suicide and suicidal behavior. Um, it's, there has been kind of a recent focus on the language that we use in relation to suicide. And really the words that we use can cause distress and perpetuate stigma uh, and discourage help seeking. And some studies have actually recently investigated language use in suicide. In general, results kind of show that a variation kind of exists uh, in terms of the opinions um, about from people affected by suicide regarding most phrases. And it kind of depends on the context. And I'll talk a little bit more uh, in a minute about kind of the specifics of how we want to talk about suicide. Um, this study in particular that I included here uh, found that using terms like attempted suicide, took their own life, and died by suicide were considered kind of the most acceptable terms to use uh, when talking about this very sensitive topic. 
So again, you know, language really matters in this case, and, and the, the words we use can really kind of perpetuate stigma. And one of the longstanding, uh, I think, terms uh, that we hear about with regard to suicide is the term commit suicide or committed suicide. And uh, this is really kind of ingrained in our vocabulary. And, you know, I still hear this pretty regularly. And uh, we want to try to get away from this type of language. And so I included here uh, some other or alternative terms to use instead of some of the more outdated uh, or stigmatizing language that we're used to using. So one example, like I said, is the term committed suicide. And one of the reasons not to use this type of language is because it implies that suicide really is a crime. Um, in addition, the terms successful or completed suicide also um, kind of in, in, implies that there's kind of a good thing or an achievement made by dying by suicide. And so what we really wanna say instead is died by suicide or death by suicide, um, as opposed to kind of the, the more outdated language that I just mentioned. And so the studies like the ones that I just mentioned in the previous slide really suggest that academic and even media guidelines should promote the use of more person-centered person and less stigmatizing language. So you'll notice here that actually the citation is from the Canadian Psychiatric Association's media guidelines for report, reporting on suicide uh, in an attempt to uh, also inform the media on ways we can reduce the stigma around suicide. A couple of other language changes that I would recommend um, are listed here as well. So instead of saying a person is suicidal or schizophrenic or bipolar or even diabetic or alcoholic, uh, those types of terms, they really um, define someone by their experience as opposed to just the experience of having a suicidal thought, for instance. And so we wanna use more person-centered language like I mentioned before. So these destigmatizing words show more compassion, understanding, and can help promote help seeking and uh, treatment. Okay, so for everyone participating, if you could use this QR code, I included a few poll questions and I'm really hoping this works. Uh, so take a moment to go ahead and scan the QR code and we will see if, if we can get this poll working today. All right. So the first poll question is, suicide is the leading cause of death overall in the United States. Um, or excuse me, suicide is the blank leading cause of death overall in the United States. So please select your answer. We'll kind of talk a little bit more about that. Oops. 
Not sure if it's working. I don't see any responses. Oh, here we go. Okay, so everyone so far has said 10th. So actually, suicide is currently the 12th leading cause of death overall in the United States. It was the 10th leading cause of death for several years. However, given that COVID-19 has now entered the top 10, uh, we've actually seen uh, that suicide has gone further down the list. Okay, and now for the next poll question. Let's see here. Oops. Okay, next poll question. So this is suicide is the blank leading cause of death for individuals between the ages of 10 to 14. Okay. All right, so you guys are doing great. So let's see here. Whoops. All right, so yes, yeah, suicide uh, is the second leading cause of death for individuals between the ages of 10 and 14. Uh, so this is quite striking uh, as a statistic and kind of further highlights the need for, um, you know, suicide prevention efforts. And like I said before, uh, because COVID-19 has entered the top 10 for uh, leading causes of death, um, things have kind of been pushed down a bit. All right, we'll keep moving here. So more on the impact of COVID on suicide. So we actually did see elevated suicidal ideation in specific populations during the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically younger adults and um, people of color, essential workers. So these are gonna be people working in grocery stores and, um, oops, sorry. And, um, you know, those that couldn't kind of quarantine during the pandemic. Also unpaid adult caregivers. So these are gonna be the family caregivers and then COVID-19 survivors as well. Uh, what we did see uh, interestingly and kind of contrary to what experts and uh, kind of scholars were predicting is that there was actually a decrease in overall suicide rate. So deaths by suicide. Um, there were a couple of exceptions to this, however, as well. Um, and that is for young adult males and people of color. So the, the data actually from the CDC showed that, um, that the rates did decrease. And sometimes we see this um, during periods of community-wide distress 
So often this is because kind of cohesion and interpersonal connectedness increase, which can actually mitigate risk for suicide. Uh, as some of you may know, September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And given that that's just a couple of weeks away, I definitely wanted to make sure to spend some time talking about that today. And so the goal of uh, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month is to kind of raise awareness of the stigmatized and often taboo topic of suicide. And uh, there are lots of organizations that use this month to shift kind of the perception and to try to spread hope and share vital information to people affected by suicide. And you'll notice here on the calendar that there's a Suicide Prevention Awareness Week and then a World Suicide Prevention Awareness Day, which is Saturday the 10th. And then I've also highlighted Physician Suicide Awareness Day, which is on September 20th or September 17th uh, every year. And uh, physicians have one of the highest suicide rates of any, pro any profession. And while this um, was a crisis long before COVID-19, really the demands of the pandemic have created really a sense of urgency to better support physicians' mental health and well-being. And what we know is, um, like I said, the, the rates are, are very high uh, given kind of the demands of the job and that there are a number of barriers that prevent physicians from seeking help. Uh, so state medical licensure and renewal applications, credentialing and privileging systems in hospitals, um, malpractice insurance applications, um, often ask questions about mental health, and I know uh, physicians tend to not want to disclose on these forms or they're not able to, and this can kind of further create stigma and barriers to getting treatment. Another is that oftentimes the mental health insurance requires treatment where the physician works. And so, you know, it's, it's just as important to kind of be caring for the caregivers as it is for us to be identifying and screening for suicide and suicide risk among our patients. And so I, I wanted to take some time today to really talk about prevention of physician suicide too, and encourage you all to uh, access some of these resources, you know, in September and, and beyond really. Um, so Vital Signs is one source that I used uh, in creation of this presentation, and it's a campaign to end physician suicide offers a, a lot of different materials and resources to help, um, including this HEART acronym. And so I've, I had to break it up over two slides, but essentially it says to be thinking about or looking for these signs in yourself and your colleagues. Um, the first one is health or the H in the HEART acronym. And behaviors to watch out for in terms of health include increasing substance use, or talking about wanting to die. The E refers to feeling, feelings of hopelessness, lack of purpose, or experiencing mood swings. The third one is attitude or negativity about work or personal life and expressions of inappropriate anger or sadness. Next is relationships. So noticing isolation from family, friends, coworkers, 
or even making mention about being a burden to others. Uh, this can really be an indicator of um, suicide risk or potential, uh, at least mental health concerns. And the fifth is temperament. So um, any physical discomfort, tiredness, acting anxious or agitated. And so some of these, you know, especially tiredness, um, that's kind of common among physicians given, you know, the different schedules uh, and work shifts. And so, you know, paying attention to these kinds of things can be really important. So like I said, there are a lot of resources available, especially um, from this Vital Signs organization. I, I included the website here, but I also included a QR code to physician suicide prevention resources that um, are pretty comprehensive. So some of the types that are included are wellness resources, peer support, confidential pro professional support. And then there were even some um, suggestions or recommendations specifically for medical educators. So for any of those faculty um, or you know, folks in medical education, whether it's graduate or undergraduate that may be viewing this presentation today, I encourage you to check out this uh, list of resources uh, for yourselves and for sharing with your learners and colleagues. Okay, so like I said, I you know it's it's really important to take care of the caregiver as well, and so I wanted to really start by talking about physician suicide and and the importance of. Um, prevention of, of suicide or reducing suicide risk among physicians. Um, and now we're gonna switch gears and talk some more about uh, patient suicide prevention. So we'll talk some about risk assessment and interventions. I've got some more poll questions here. So the next poll question, what percentage of those who died by suicide saw a primary care physician one month before their death. All right, anybody else? Okay, so I'm seeing that um, everyone chose 28%. And actually the percentage is 45%. So of those uh, who died by suicide, 45% um, saw a primary care physician within one month before their death. Um, half of patients who die by suicide have seen a physician within the past month, 20% um, within the past week. And so it's, it's very common that people who are considering um, suicide are seeking health or healthcare and seeing physicians, which highlights the need to really be able to identify and screen um, and assess risk in patients and healthcare. 
Okay, next poll question, just to get a sense of how comfortable people are with suicide risk assessment and intervention. Okay, somewhat comfortable I'm seeing. Okay. All right. So it sounds like um, somewhat uh, the attendees today are somewhat comfortable uh, with assessing for suicide risk and providing the appropriate intervention. And, you know, that's actually pretty good. This can be a difficult topic and a difficult area uh, to assess and really make sure that uh, an appropriate intervention is offered. And so it is my hope that by talking some more about risk factors for suicide um, screening and assessment, that your comfort will increase even further. So first I wanna talk some about using the use of screening tools for identifying suicide risk in patients. If you work in an outpatient, um, especially in primary care, you're probably familiar with the PHQ-9 uh, and hopefully also the PHQ-9 modified for teens, which I've included here uh, on the slide. Um, if you work in any other setting, the PHQ and PHQ-9 PHQ modified for teens can be quickly and easily administered in, in those settings as well. So, um, when I was at Genesis on fellowship, uh, we actually regularly used the PHQ-9 uh, in, the, in, in the hospital as well to assess quickly for uh, depressive symptoms and to get a sense of um, frequency or thoughts of suicide. So the PHQ-9, for those that are not uh, aware of it, is for individuals 18 and over. And the PHQ modified for teens is for those ages 11 to 17. And I've highlighted a couple of the uh, important questions here as they relate to suicide. So for the PHQ-9, it's question nine. Um, if that's endorsed in any way other than zero, um, an assessment of suicide risk is needed. Arguably, um, you may even want to assess for history of suicide, even if the answer is zero for that question, um, given that these things can change over time. And it's important, as we'll uh, talk about in a little bit, it's important to know about someone's history of depressive symptoms and suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, the PHQ modified for teens also includes a uh, question nine that asks specifically about thinking that a person would be better off dead or hurting themselves in some way. Uh, one of the really nice things about the PHQ modified for teens is that it includes a couple of these questions about history. So has there ever been a time in the past month when you've had serious thoughts about ending your life? And have you ever in your whole life tried to kill yourself or made a suicide attempt? So it gets at um, some of the history that might be helpful in providing or stratifying these patients in terms of their suicide risk. So 
So risk factors to really be looking for when it comes to uh, suicide risk. I included a, a nice chart here of precipitating and predisposing factors. So uh, heavy alcohol intake uh, or drug use and uh, access to le lethal means, um, certain life events, and then new diagnosis of terminal or chronic physical illness uh, can be strong predictors of suicide. Um, and it includes here too the quality of the evidence on, on those uh, precipitating factors as well. So these are gonna be things that happen um, in that precipitate or you know, happen prior to a suicide attempt or death by suicide. Uh, predisposing factors are, uh, the research shows neuropsychiatric disorders, a family history of suicidal behavior, especially a family history of suicide, um, previous suicide attempt. And the reason that this is such a, um, a significant risk factor is because it's such a scary process and sort of against our like internal uh, need to survive that it can be really hard to try to take one's life. And the more that people um, engage in that behavior, it reduces the fear. Um, they almost habituate to it um, and it becomes less scary. Uh, which then, like I said, increases risk uh, for that reason. Adverse childhood experiences are another predisposing factor. So uh, without getting into too much detail about um, uh, adverse childhood experiences, essentially what we know is this is any trauma in childhood uh, or difficult experiences like divorce of a parent, uh, parents uh, incarcerated, uh, and those types of things. Uh, adverse childhood experiences also have a strong correlation with uh, physical health conditions and um, mental health conditions as well. So the more uh, ACEs that a person experiences in childhood, the more likely they are to experience a chronic health condition uh, like diabetes, hypertension, et cetera. Um, and or a mental health condition like depression, anxiety, PTSD, and adulthood. And um, having, like we, as we can tell by this chart as well, having a mental health condition or a psychiatric disorder uh, also can increase risk. <clears throat> Some other factors that increase risk of suicide that aren't listed here are, you know, having a specific plan or, you know, the, and the more specific, the more um, worrisome um, or, you know, the higher the risk level. Um, another factor that can increase risk is the type of job someone has. So we talked earlier about how physicians um, are one profession that have one of the highest levels of suicide. And that's because of the knowledge of the body and kind of how things work. And some other jobs also, well, and in addition to that, also exposure to um, death and dying and kind of serious um, medical conditions, patients that are very sick, um, it, it reduces that fear as well. Um, it kind of desensitizes people in some ways to um, difficult 
experiences. So some other jobs that are similar to that include uh, police officers, uh, EMTs, firefighters, um, those in the military. Um, because of the nature of their jobs, they are also at increased risk of um, dying by suicide for the same reason, given that um, they have exposure to uh, traumatic experiences and um, death and dying and are at higher risk for um, mental health conditions as well. Um, other factors to think about, recent discharge from inpatient psych. So the period immediately following discharge from um, a psychiatric facility is a really vulnerable time. And uh, that's why the discharge planning is super important um, in, in that period because of kind of the level of risk. Because what, basically what we know about inpatient psych is it does keep people safe and, and we want people to um, go to be inpatient if they need to be uh, for safety reasons. And um, when they get out, things haven't necessarily changed. And so, um, you know, it, it may take some time to, you know, fully treat uh, any mental health condition that was going on that may have um, predisposed them to suicide. And, you know, certain life events may still be going on that precipitated uh, a suicide attempt or increase in suicidal ideation and planning. So we've talked some about the risk factors for suicide uh, and things to look out for. And so I wanna also talk about the actual assessment of suicide risk and the information that needs to be collected as part of a suicide uh, risk assessment. So thoughts of death or suicide, including the frequency and severity of these symptoms. So one of the ways that I tend to um, do this and I'll, I teach my residents that I work with um, is to ask, has your mood ever gotten so low that you thought about hurting or killing yourself? Um, are you currently thinking about, or have you recently thought about death or killing yourself? Um, those are a couple of ways uh, that I find um, that it's easy to assess for the presence of thoughts. Um, intent is another part of the risk assessment. So do you have any intention of following through with thoughts of suicide? Uh, this one I think is a little more difficult to assess for uh, without kind of having the words. And so I, I find that, um, you know, in my teaching with residents, this one is, is one that we kind of have to work on and practice a bit uh, because it's a little harder to get at intent sometimes. And then plan and means. So have you thought about how you would harm yourself? What is your plan? And then do you have access to your method? So again, I talked before about, you know, the more specific the plan, the more concerning um, that it's going to be. And if they have access to uh, the means for their plan, then that's also going to be concerning. So if someone had a plan to uh, overdose on medications, um, if they had access to medications uh, that they plan to use, that would increase their risk. And then if they had a specific, a, for example, time frame that they plan to use um, or carry out their plan. So I, if they say, you know, I would use my medications to overdose um, with the intent to die, and I plan to do this next Friday, 
that would be very concerning because of the level of specificity of the plan. Um, previous attempts uh, would even further uh, increase risk. So if there's any history, especially a uh, recent history of a previous attempt to end their life, um, that would increase risk as well. So one way to ask about this is, have you or a family member ever attempted suicide in the past? And then other risk indicators that we talked about before. So maybe asking about, or, or maybe you already know um, as the patient's physician about a, new, a recent diagnosis or um, you know, a divorce or other life event um, that might be uh, difficult for the patient. Um, so you'd wanna be thinking about those things. And then it's also helpful to assess for protective factors. Um, so the things that are keeping the patient from actually, you know, carrying out a, a plan for suicide, or maybe the things that are protecting them from going further than just thinking about suicide. Excuse me. <clears throat> so protective factors are often family members. I frequently hear um, pets are, are another one, uh, children, um, other protective factors could even include being too afraid to carry out a plan um, or to do something to kill themselves. Um, you know, not wanting to hurt others, um, having plans for the future uh, and those kinds of things. So, you, you know, one, one of the other things that I think can be difficult in terms of the suicide risk assessment is, okay, so what do I do once I gather all this information, kind of how do I know what to do from there? Um, also, you know, these situations are oftentimes kind of stressful uh, for uh, physicians and you know, during those visits because of kind of what this means. Um, it's definitely a sensitive topic. And so having a, a protocol to use um, can be especially helpful. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit today about the Columbia Protocol. There are um, a few different kind of models of suicide risk assessment, but um, uh, research has really um, significantly supported the Columbia um, in terms of reliability and validity for assessing suicide risk. And I know many um, healthcare organizations use the Columbia Protocol as part of um, their suicide risk assessment, and it's often embedded in uh, the EMR, the electronic medical records. And so, um, what the what the Columbia does, and we'll I'll show you it on the on the next slide, is that it assesses uh, severity of suicide risk. Uh, and like I said, there's been a lot of uh, research on on the uh, Columbia Protocol, and it's been found to be evidence-based. Uh, another nice thing about the Columbia is there are multiple versions and translations. So uh, if you were to go to the, the Lighthouse Project website, um, there are several different versions of the Columbia, and many of them actually don't require any training. Um, so these are often, the Columbia for schools is often used uh, with young people in schools. There's a version for police officers, I believe. Um, and so in terms of suicide prevention, you know, one of the first things you want to do is be able to accurately assess 
um, for well, identify individuals, but then assess for risk level. And so the fact that the Columbia can be used so widely, I think is a significant uh, pro for this particular instrument. <clears throat> and then it also um, includes the safety, um, which we'll talk a little bit about um, in the coming slides. So here is the Columbia. So you'll see it's even uh, color coded. So this is the safety protocol with uh, the, the Columbia risk and protective factors. This is the recent version. So there are several different versions of the Columbia, like I mentioned. I included a link down here, but if you Google uh, the Columbia um, and go to that Lighthouse Project website that I mentioned, um, you can read all about um, the Columbia and the different versions. Uh, one of the nice things, again, about it is um, the color coding system helps figure out and stratify risk level. And so you can see here, I know it's kind of small. I hope you're able to see it. Um, it the Columbia assesses for some of the things that we talked about. So having thoughts um, about wanting to die or killing yourself, um, even the thoughts about death ideation or what we kind of refer to as passive suicidal ideation. So wishing you were dead or just not waking up from sleep. Um, and you'll notice here that those questions, um, if they're answered positively or endorsed, um, that that would put someone in the low risk category. And so once we get down to question three, um, things are starting to head into the more moderate risk level. So have you been starting to plan essentially how you might hurt yourself? Uh, and then for question four, this is gonna um, get at the intent. And you'll see if all of the questions from one through four have been endorsed, um, this is putting someone more in that high risk category. And then um, number five is intent with plan. And so you'll notice that this is pretty short in terms of uh, the number of questions and gives you a lot of information and then also helps stratify risk level, which then can help figure out what intervention is necessary for this particular patient. So you'll see down at the bottom too, there are also, it talks about activating events that you can um, inquire about. So any losses, um, homelessness, um, feeling alone, and then also treatment history uh, and then clinical status as well. And then it also includes protective factors, uh, which we talked about just a minute ago. And then the next section um, has uh, questions that you can ask to get at the specifics related to thoughts, plans, and intent. <clears throat> so we talked about frequency and severity of thoughts before. So how often are you having these thoughts? Um, how long do they last when you are having them? Because um, this can also give you a sense of um, kind of how intense things are. And uh, do they feel like they can stop thinking about this if they want to? Um, and if not, that would be an indicator of increased risk as well. Um, deterrence also can be helpful for you know, treatment planning and intervention. And then this is kind of the guidelines or the, the risk stratification with the intervention. 
And again, this is one of the reasons I think that Columbia is can be particularly helpful. And you know, I'm not surprised research has shows such good outcomes for this. Um, so it, the high risk level, so or the red, um, and tells you what that would include. And then in, in the triage column talks about uh, what to do in response to that. So if someone is at high risk or imminent risk for suicide, really the, the intervention is to initiate psychiatric admission. Um, in our clinics, we uh, have our behavioral health consultants fill out the petition and our attendings uh, fill out the clinical cert. And we have a whole uh, process for um, calling, you know, for assistance with transferring the person to uh, the hospital. Uh, if someone's already in the hospital and you determine that they're at a high risk for suicide, you know, consulting psychiatry uh, is often a good uh, way to get them the help they need. Uh, or if you feel comfortable yourself with assessing the level of risk, uh, physicians can also complete clinical certificates for um, admission. One of the things I always talk about too with, with the attendings that I work with, my, my colleagues, um, there were, for a while, uh, many of them thought that if they filled out the clinical certificate, that meant the person was automatically going to the inpatient unit, and they often didn't feel um, very comfortable with that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I provided some education about how actually two certificates are needed in order for a person to be uh, admitted to an inpatient psych unit. Um, one can be done by a physician or a psychologist, um, or both can be done by a physician. And then um, you'll want to do follow-up um, and documentation of kind of what was done in terms of sending a person to the hospital and then um, what the result of that visit to the hospital was. So essentially when, when we send someone to the hospital from our clinics, uh, what we're doing is ensuring that person is evaluated by um, a psychiatrist uh, for further determination of uh, treatment options. And it's not always inpatient psych that's the answer, um, but this process can also hook a person up with um, other programs like intensive outpatient or partial hospital programs that can't really be uh, initiated outpatient from like a primary care office. Uh, Common Ground is, an, is a local um, organization that has like a behavioral health kind of emergency or like urgent care. Uh, and so that would be another option um, in Oakland County. Um, I'm not sure about other counties in the area, but that would be something to look into as well. Um, most of your people are probably gonna fall in, or most of the patients that you assess uh, suicide risk for are probably gonna fall somewhere in the low to moderate range. And I think this can be probably even more difficult to figure out sort of what to, what to do without kind of a plan um, or a, um, a model to kind of work off of. And so for moderate risk, um, you wanna direct, directly address the suicide risk and uh, develop a safety plan. So, um, and, think, and also be thinking about uh, treating any mental health condition. So referring to therapy, referring to, or uh, starting a medication, 
um, if that is appropriate, depending on diagnosis. And then, like I said, developing a safety plan. Um, and then for low risk, um, safety plan, I think is never a bad idea. So you could do that even with low risk as kind of a preventative measure uh, and also provide outpatient referrals if necessary um, or start medication if um, symptoms are, uh, would warrant that. And then there's also a note about documentation down here or a section for documentation. So making sure um, things to include in your note um, when using the Columbia. Also um, always make us a, a point to discuss things, uh, one thing not to do. So um, key recommendations for practice include, you know, directly assessing for suicidal ideation, um, screening for depression, anxiety, substance use, uh, and then treating suicidal ideation with medications and uh, therapy or psychological interventions. And I, I included a, um, a circle here around avoiding the use of suicide prevention contracts. Historically, this was one method of intervention that was used and really the research repeatedly shows that this uh, is not effective and individuals who want to die by suicide uh, don't, uh, you know, signing a contract doesn't prevent that. So um, always make a point of um, including that as well. Uh, we talked about a safety plan. The um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline um, has this template here and I included the website as, here as well for that. Um, so this is a, a template for a safety plan that you can help the patient create. Um, so they would come up with three warning signs that something might be developing. So um, how do they know that things are getting worse? Um, also coming, helping them come up with internal coping strategies. And then um, what are some people or places that can provide distraction? And then who can you ask for help? Uh, and then some um, pr professionals or agencies to contact during a crisis and then a plan um, for making the environment safer. So this might include means restriction or getting rid of uh, the means to carry out a plan. Um, these can be created with a patient. If you make a copy, you can scan them in the chart um, and the patient can take this with them and be prepared in the event that um, things get worse. Another uh, point I wanted to talk about is the National Suicide Prevention Lifetime, Lifeline um, or 1-800-273-TALK as it was previously known has now changed to the 988, which is a Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And this is a great thing to include on a safety plan. So if someone is experiencing suicidal ideation, I always recommend that my residents uh, and coworkers or colleagues uh, give this um, information as part of the safety plan. And um, now that we have this new uh, 988 code, it's much, much easier for people to remember. And so I wanted to make a point of that. And there are uh, lots of resources on uh, their website as well. If you want to um, go to the, the website, if you typed in 988, um, you will find that information as well. All right. 
Any final questions? I, I know I talked about a lot of different things today. Um, we talked about preventing, um, preventing suicide in physicians, and then also, you know, the impact of COVID on suicide and mental health conditions, and then, you know, suicide risk assessment and interventions. So um, I wanted to make sure to leave some time for any questions. And anyone joining us, you're welcome to put the questions in the chat or just identify yourself in the chat and I can turn your microphone on. Doesn't look like we have any questions at this point, but if we do, I'll, I'll certainly add that. Um, thank you, thank you, Dr. Zelewinski. This was such an important topic and we appreciate your input very much. Um, to all of you joining us, I'm gonna go ahead and put the activity code in the chat for today's CME activity tracker. And I will also add it to the screen. All right, well, thank you very much. And if anyone has any questions uh, about any of the things I talked about, um, feel free to send me an email. I should have included that on the last slide. It's my first name dot last name at ascension.org. Um, maybe I can put that in the chat here for anyone um, that may wanna contact me. All right, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you all very much, thank you. Uh, thank you to all that attended. I will leave the meeting open just a little longer so that the CME information stays up on the screen. And we appreciate you all joining us today. Thank you so much.